Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical, environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Parker. Welcome to the silky smooth sounds of the Green and Red podcast. I am your co-host, Scott Parkin, in Berkeley, California. And we have an exciting show for you today. And as always, I am joined by... Bob Vizanko. Good to see you again after 24 hours. So. Yep, yep. Uh, and today we have an exciting show. We're going to be talking about forest fires in the Amazon. Uh, we'll be talking to uh, Pendle Marshall Hallmark, who's a climate and finance campaigner at Amazon Watch. I'm going to get a little bit more deeper into the bio here in a moment. But I just actually wanted to kind of do a quick tribute or a quick mention of the passing of uh, David Graeber, um, we're sat, who passed away yesterday in Venice, Italy. We're saddened to hear about the passing of, of David. He was an anthropologist and anarchist, author of best-selling books on direct action and anti-capitalism. Um, he wrote a book on debt, but and then he wrote a, a book uh, called um, Bullshit Jobs, which uh, actually had some important things to say. Well, maybe we'll have a future episode about some of David's work with someone in the future. Um, but he was a, at the time of his death, he was a professor of London at the London School of Economics. And interestingly, David, even though he, you know, worked in academia, he um, was very much with kind of people in the streets, people in the grassroots. For example, in 2005, he was denied tenure at Yale for helping uh, graduate students form a union. Um, He was a thinker and an organizer in the global justice movement, as well as the Occupy Wall Street movement. He actually is credited with coining the term, we are the 99%, but when people would ask him about that, he would always say it was a group effort uh, when they came up with that. But, you know, here in uh, the Green Red podcast, we consider ourselves to, you know, have a, a philosophy around scrappy politics and scrappy history and very much be with people in the streets and workers and things like that. And so we just wanted to kind of like mention about the, the passing of our, of a, of a comrade, uh, a fellow, a fellow traveler, David, David Graeber. So. Yeah. I think uh, what happened to him at Yale is unfortunately typical of, of too many people in the Academy who I think of Stott and Land who lost a job at Yale because of the Vietnam war. And, uh, you know, he's probably best known for debt, but I, I really like bullshit jobs. And it was an idea that, like, I think a lot of us had talked about, but he kind of crystallized it. And, and when uh, everything shut down last, you know, last this March and April, I thought of that a lot because what we saw was that, you know, the U.S. economy was kind of destroyed, but there were no factories destroyed. There were no farms destroyed and things still were made. I mean, there was still food. There were, you know, obviously precarity. People were hungry, but you know, people were still making stuff. And it made me realize, and it made a lot of people realize, like how many people weren't doing really bullshit jobs, you know, because there was that, you know, all that stuff about essential workers. Well, there really aren't that many. So this economy is really based on people making a lot of things that, you know, are, are working in fulfillment centers or answering phones or making stuff that isn't really all that important to our lives. And if that falls apart, like it did in, in February, or I'm sorry, in March and April, the economy was shattered even though like the essential stuff that we need, you know, there, there was still housing, people were still making cars, people were still making, you know, growing food, uh, you know, that kind of thing wasn't really affected. So I think he really hit on something really important there. So that rather than debt to me is, is, is really, I think his, his contribution. Uh, and, and it's, it's really unfortunate to see, you know, somebody 
that young uh, leave us at this particular time. So, yeah. Yeah. So uh, love and solidarity to all of uh, David Graeber's friends, comrades, and family. Um, now we're going to turn to our episode. And so today we're joined by uh, Pendle Marshall Hallmark. Welcome, Pendle. Thank you for having me. Yep. Uh, Pendle is, a, like I said, a climate and finance campaigner at Amazon Watch, which is an Oakland-based human rights and environmental advocacy organization focused on protecting the Amazon rainforest and the rights of indigenous people. Uh, prior to joining Amazon Watch, Pendle lived in Columbia for two years, where she accompanied indigenous and campesino activists resisting corporate, paramilitary, and state-led invasions of their lands. We're going to actually talk a little bit about that today, hopefully. And then uh, Pendle is a, a graduate of Swarthmore College, but also worked in Philadelphia. Uh, Swarthmore is in Philadelphia uh, as, a, as a community organizer around issues of immigration, healthcare access, and labor rights. And so happy to have you here, Pendle. And by the time this show will air, we'll have posted a, a, another show about the, about the cow partially about the California wildfires. Um, and it's a little bit of a, a wildfire theme this week, I guess, at Green and Red. Um, and so maybe kind of starting with that, would you like to share with us a little bit about maybe some of the difference between what's going on with the California wildfires and, and, the, and the wildfires in the Amazon? Yeah, uh, totally. I think that that's a really important um there's a really important distinction to make between the two because the the fires that are happening in California have been, um, you know, whether they were started by by human beings accidentally um, or or what exactly happened, they've sort of spread naturally because of um, the hot climate. Whereas in Brazil, um, you know, it's also concerning to see rainforests set on fire. They're not supposed to be burning. Um, but a lot of the fires that are happening in Brazil right now were set by criminal arsonists who are actually um, trying actively to clear land um, to make way for agribusiness. So uh, a lot of the, that's a really important difference um, to make for people is that what's happening in Brazil, um, in the Amazon, in other parts of Latin America is not, um, it's not happening by accident. It's actually happening because um, companies um, and asset managers that are invested in those companies are allowing their supply chains to source from people who are illegally setting these fires um, and there's not the same kind of oversight um, there's there's not a kind of oversight of that uh, that there should be so yes it is fire season and I think it's it's actually like <laughs> I'm new to the Bay Area myself and so experiencing fire season personally for the first time and I think it has kind of it reaches people at a gut level when you realize like this is what fire season feels like um, this is what's happening in the Amazon um, but they're they're being caused uh, for different reasons particularly during the pandemic where it's really you're not actually there's a lot of places that you can't go inside yet with all the smoke from the fires, you can't actually, it's not really healthy to be outside. <laughs> right, exactly. It's, it's extremely kind of claustrophobic. So. So, so last year, more than a million hectares of Amazonian forests were burned. The trend shows the destruction is far from over. In June, just June, more than 2,000 fire hotspots were registered in the Amazon, the highest number in the last 13 years. So what is going on with fire season in the Amazon right now? Can you tell us a bit about what to expect or what we're already seeing? Yeah, well, we're actually seeing um, kind of worse uh, deforestation and fires than we've seen in the last 10 years. There's actually some data that came out uh, 
recently that was correcting, I think there had been, I, I don't have it right in front of me, but basically showing that um, people had thought that this year was actually not quite as bad as last year, because last year there was this huge kind of blow up uh, worldwide. People were totally enraged about what was happening in the Amazon. Um, and things are actually looking like they're going to be a lot worse uh, this year compared to last year. So um, we're really, uh, you know, I'm a campaigner at Amazon Watch and we have the ceasefire campaign. We're trying to, um, you know, draw attention to what's happening and let folks know this is not something that was, you know, reached its peak last year, but it's actually only going to get worse. And the Amazon is actually reaching um, what a lot of climate scientists are calling a tipping point, where if enough, I think it's less than 5% more of the rainforest is deforested, it actually risks hitting what's called savannification um, or turning into a savanna um, instead of uh, maintaining its, its uh, biome as a rainforest, which would basically set off this chain reaction and release huge amounts of, of um, tons of carbon into the atmosphere. Basically, it would, instead of being a carbon sink, um, uh, be releasing uh, carbon and that would affect, of course, um, global weather patterns. Um, and uh, so that's kind of what we're confronting right now um, right. in the Amazon. And this is, we're mostly talking about predominantly in Brazil, correct? Yeah, uh, mostly in Brazil, although the Western Amazon is also uh, having a lot of problems with, um, there's, we actually just released a report about uh, crude oil extraction in the Western Amazon and how um, a lot of folks uh, living in that part of the rainforest are um, experiencing uh, pollution from huge oil spills. Ecuador um, just had several major pipeline um, pipelines break. Um, so the Amazon is also at risk in that part of it, um, although the right. majority of the forest of, of the fires are happening yeah, in Brazil. And a lot of this is on, indig on indigenous land, indigenous territory, what, what in the U.S. Um, we might call reservations. Yes, yeah. I think there's actually been a 77% increase in fires on indigenous territories um, this year compared to last year. Um, and most of these fires are not actually happening on indigenous territories. It's important to mm. mention that, that they are happening um, in areas where large-scale agribusiness is happening. Um, but they are reaching indigenous territories, and obviously they're adjacent to indigenous territories. And so that, for obvious reasons, is affecting people, especially in the context of the, the COVID pandemic, as you mentioned earlier. Right. These are already communities that are really vulnerable to, uh, because there's a lack of healthcare infrastructure, um, lack of supplies. So they're already struggling with, with uh, the pandemic. And on top of that, now they're dealing with these fires affecting their, their environment. I read about this one. It, it's a big story like last year, but in general, I don't follow it as closely, obviously. So do you want to just kind of talk a little bit about um, what specifically is happening? Why these lands are being you know, kind of burnt. Uh, what is it for agriculture? Is it for raw materials? What's the specific reason, you know, to destroy this land, to, to accumulate it? It's, uh, it's what Marxists would call primitive accumulation. Uh, <laughs> what, which companies are doing it, you know, just to kind of like fill me in, you know, and I, I suspect many of our listeners who kind of, I follow it on a superficial level when it's in the news, but otherwise there's, you know, like you know, so much going on. I, I really don't 
you know, know about it nearly as much as I wish I did. Yeah, totally. Um, so I'm trying to figure out how to, how to package this in the, in the most efficient way. Um, basically, yeah, most of these fires are being set by folks who are trying to clear land um, that can then be used by large-scale agribusiness companies. Um, and some of those are, um, to name a few brands, uh, JBS is the world's largest meat packer. And a lot of, uh, there, there was a, a number of reports that have come out. I think one was uh, Amnesty International actually came out with a report recently showing that JBS um, has uh, sourced cattle in its supply chains that um, were grazing on illegally deforested lands. So they have a huge share of the market and they have tremendous power to insist that their cattle not be coming from deforested lands and they're not doing that. So um, JBS is one brand, Marfrig, Minerva, Bungie, these are all big agribusiness brands. They're doing cattle, soy um, cultivation in the Amazon. And the typical kind of cycle of deforestation is that you have, so you have prime rainforest, um, and then usually the first folks to come in are loggers. And I believe, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I don't want to misquote something, but I think a study recently came out in one state in Brazil, 85% um, of the logging uh, was actually happening illegally. So folks, illegal loggers come in, they cut down the wood, <clears throat> and then you're left with kind of just a bunch of stumps, right? So people set fire to that or it's no longer useful. Um, and then once you've cleared those uh, trees, you can then use that area for cattle grazing. Um, <clears throat> and then once the cattle have gone through it, um, the nutrients in the soil are so depleted that usually the, the, the kind of typical cycle is that you'll have um, these companies come in that wanna, wanna grow soy African palm, whatever the crop is, they pump the soil full of um, usually uh, <laughs> unnatural chemicals. Um, and then uh, you have a monocrop growing in that region. So, which is obviously bad for, for um, biodiversity for the environment. Um, so that's kind of the typical cycle. And so deforestation is kind of the first step in that process. Um, and a lot of those brands are tied to this kind of illegal logging, illegal deforestation that's happening. Um, and then I think the other piece that's really important to mention when we're talking about brands is the companies that are invested in these, uh, the asset management uh, companies or the financial institutions that are invested in these brands. Um, in uh, at Amazon Watch, uh, you know, and, and a number of other environmental advocacy organizations were actually campaigning against BlackRock um, in particular, which is the world's largest asset manager. Um, they have over $7.4 trillion um, in assets under management right now. So they're a key, key player. Um, I think something that sometimes happens in the environmental movement is folks are like, my God, you have money, you're like, you know, you're, you're automatically a bad person, you should divest immediately from all of these companies. Um, end of story. I think in finance campaigning, what we're trying to do is, um, yes, there are some industries that we should absolutely divest from, um, fossil fuels, for example, but I think 
um, when it comes to deforestation and, and agribusiness companies, the route that a lot of finance uh, kind of campaigners in the environmental space are trying to do is get these companies to take um, deforestation out of their supply chains. So, um, it, you know, divestment, if we're, if we're asking BlackRock to divest from JBS, which is the world's largest meat packer, BlackRock immediately loses its ability to influence um, uh, JBS's supply chains. So kind of the strategy there is a little bit different from uh, strategy when it comes to fossil fuel companies, for example, which are just like, uh, you know, the business model is inherently terrible for the earth. Um, so, yeah. We just want fossil fuel companies to stop existing. That's I mean, the, that's basically. The goal. That's the goal of finance campaigning on fossil fuels, right? <laughs> Basically, I mean, it's it's like it's complicated, but um, but yeah, that's I mean, I think if um, to put it bluntly, yes. Um, but I think with I think that's kind of important to talk about with with BlackRock, with these like giant actors that have a lot of power, have a lot of influence. Um, you know, if we can move a target like that to commit to real binding policies on indigenous rights and on um, removing deforestation from its supply chains, from, from the supply chains of the companies that it's invested in. Um, that's huge. You know, that's a, that's a huge um, tool. So quick question, just to like kind of connect some dots. So JBS, is that a Brazilian company? Yes. And then, so they, are they a, a client or do business with BlackRock? Yeah. BlackRock is invested um, in, uh, JBS, um, an exporter company called ADM, um, and Bungie, and then they're also invested in a number of fossil fuel companies in the Western Amazon, and I could go into those as well. Um, but yeah, Black BlackRock is a significant shareholder um, in a number of agribusiness companies, virtually. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Uh, so the, the major American uh, intervention in this then is through BlackRock and through, through finance, through investment, rather than uh, production or distribution or anything like that? Right, yeah. Um, I'd say a lot of the companies that are operating in the Amazon are Brazilian companies. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, um, it, you know, some of them, some of them are, are American companies, but the kind of key power that, that we see ourselves having um, in the U.S. is a, a lot of folks in the U.S. have their pension funds invested or being managed by BlackRock. Um, you know, BlackRock is also not the only financial institution that we're targeting. I mentioned them because we have a specific campaign on them asking them to adopt a policy on deforestation and indigenous rights. But, you know, we've also, we've released reports recently showing that, um, you know, JP Morgan Chase, um, HSBC, uh, which is actually based in the UK, um, but Vanguard, State Street, these are all major financial institutions based in the US that are heavily invested in fossil fuel and deforestation companies. Um, real quick before my next question is just a quick station ID. Uh, you are listening to Pendle uh, Marshall Hallmark from Amazon Watch talking about Amazonian rainforests and financial connections mm. here in the U.S. Uh, Green and Red podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, if you want to support Green and Red, you can go to patron.com backslash Green Red podcast and become a recurring donor, or you can go to uh, greenandredpodcast.org, our 
fancy website, which has been really updated really well lately. Uh, and there's a donate button if you want to make a one-time <clears throat> donation. Um, appreciate you naming the names of the other companies, BlackRock, besides BlackRock, so J.P. Morgan Chase, HSBC, Vanguard, State Street. Um, BlackRock in particular, just to kind of dig in on that a little bit, is like is is a little bit unique to some of these other companies. They're a they're a privately held company versus publicly traded. And so, what sort of leverage is there over a company like BlackRock that a, a campaigning, a scrappy campaigning organization like Amazon Watch might have? Well, we they do um, we we do do shareholder engagement. So um, we are working on uh, coordinating. Um, uh, shareholder outreach um, with a bunch of other organizations. We're not the only organization that's that's uh, trying to target BlackRock. We're actually part of a, a coalition called the Stop the Money Pipeline Coalition um, that folks may have heard about on this podcast. Um, but it's basically, yeah, a group of different climate organizations that are that are trying to stop the flow of, of money from major financial institutions into environmental destruction. So we're working on kind of developing a database of shareholders in these companies, and we um, host actions at um, the AGMs um, of these companies. We actually just did a kind of scrappy uh, online um, People's Assembly on BlackRock on the, the day of their AGM this past spring. Um, so there's, there's kind of that, that route where we're, we're targeting individual shareholders. And then we're also talking with pension fund managers like CalPERS, um, that are also doing business with BlackRock, um, talking to, uh, you know, Scott Stringer, um, for example, uh, is, is heading, um, the New York comptroller. Yes. Thank you. New York city comptroller. Yeah. Um, so kind of talking to key decision makers about um, who have access to large funds that are being managed by BlackRock um, mm -hmm. to then pressure them um, to change their policy. So it's sort of looking at the folks that, that are invested uh, to put that kind of pressure on them and then also um, uh, leading kind of outward campaigns with the, with the general public. I think another, you know, I think the question is kind of about what sort of influence can we have on BlackRock? Um, another thing that's kind of come up, uh, recently is, uh, the, you know, the upcoming elections, a lot of the leadership at BlackRock, um, is vying for cabinet positions with a Biden administration. So there's kind of an interesting angle there, um, that, uh, campaign strategists are thinking about where, how can we kind of associate um, the leadership at these companies, you know, Larry Fink, Brian Deese um, at BlackRock with, uh, it, you know, this bad reputation on climate um, and sort of put the pressure there. Like if you're, if you're not able to make these commitments, your potential cabinet position might be on the line. Um, so sort of affecting people's public image as well. Real quick, earlier this year, speaking of Larry Fink, CEO of BlackRock, he came out and said that, they'd be divesting from coal, they'd be avoiding fossil fuel funds in future investments, they'd be choosing new board members that factor into climate into decision-making. But then when we talk about deforestation, which obviously has a pretty huge climate footprint, they declined to di divest from companies like Archer Daniels Midland and Bungie, which are two ag giants connected to rainforests, Amazon deforestation and fires. 
And so like, what impact is that having? To me, I mean, I've been a campaigner for a long time on climate, various climate issues. And so it often feels like the sort of bait and switch, the sort of like PR, public relations smoke and mirrors. And so what impact is him making that statement? Because like in the climate campaigner circles I was in, that was like a big deal. Oh my God, Larry Fink, this BlackRock signaling that he's going to do something about climate. Fink blinked is what they call it. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, it is really frustrating because... um, you know, I have like family members who do finance work, like they're actually like finance wonks. Um, and, you know, to people that are not in the climate space, Fink looks great. You know, he's like, oh, he's come out. He's like com- committed to environmental sustainability. He did these things. Um, smoke, public relations, smoke and mirrors. Yeah. But when you actually look at it close up, Um, I think an important statistic is that at least 65, I've also heard 75% quoted, of BlackRock's assets are in passive funds. Um, So it's important to kind of make that distinction. There's like actively managed funds and passively managed funds. And BlackRock basically washes its hands of any responsibility when it comes to their passively managed funds. So if any of those assets are invested in companies that are... um, polluting that are related to deforestation commodities like that's they're basically completely uh not claiming responsibility for that at all um which leaves us with a very small percentage of their assets that they are willing to control or take responsibility for um and another thing is their uh esg funds um which i don't know if folks um, listening to this podcast would be familiar with the term but environmental social governance funds which are basically like the clean or the green funds that um, a lot of asset managers will offer to clients. Um, And those are kind of the new kind of sexy thing right now um, in finance. A lot of people are really excited, you know, especially millennial investors, they care about um, doing good things with their money. So they're all about investing in ESG portfolios. But when we actually look close up at BlackRock's ESG offerings, there's a lot to be desired. There's a lot of companies that are doing bad things in their ESG, um, in their ESG funds. So um, I think, yeah, it it feels like a PR stunt um, when we actually look at the numbers and we look at what um, BlackRock's engagement has been. I think you already just mentioned this, but they've voted in pretty much every shareholder resolution um, on deforestation. They voted against it. Um, for the last 10 years. So yeah, they're not, their actions are not consistent with their words. Yeah. Um, One other thing is, so, you know, there's also a somewhat shady government in Brazil. And so, you know, what sort of like connections, communications are we seeing between like BlackRock? I know that um, back right around the beginning of the pandemic, there was actually a protest outside of Chase's headquarters in, in Manhattan uh, because delegates from um, Bolsonaro was actually in the U.S. and some of his entourage went and visited Chase. It was on their way to the White House. It's actually that time that Trump got exposed to COVID by people from Brazil. Um, right. But like, what is it? Are we seeing like connections between Brazil and, and BlackRock, like active public communication? That's a good question. I actually haven't heard about um, BlackRock, Bolsonaro, like Fink, Bolsonaro specific relations. Um, but I think it's it's pretty clear that 
that Bolsonaro's administration is not going to be listening to climate activists anytime soon. So yeah. kind of the the theory of change there is to affect the the Brazilian administration via the private sector. So, um, you know, Bolsonaro is not going to be listening to any protesters on the ground in Brazil. Um, you know, it might not look very good for him uh, to have been at that at that protest that you mentioned. But there is a, a campaign that recently launched called the Which Side Are You On campaign um, <clears throat> that's being uh, there's a number of different organizations connected to it. So I'm not going to um, name any specific one, but basically it's it's an international campaign. So there's folks in Brazil, there's folks in the U.S. and Europe that are all participating. Um, and the idea is basically targeting major brands um, for uh, getting their their for sourcing from um, the Amazon um, and uh, kind of pressuring Bolsonaro. Um, sort of creating this dichotomy um, for people between you're either on the side of the Amazon or you're on the side of Bolsonaro um, and making it really clear to people that the the way that we're going to pressure uh, Bolsonaro is via the private sector. So targeting, if, if these brands then come to Bolsonaro and say, look, we can't be doing business here, you know, this looks really bad for us, that would be a potential way to get him to... Um, strengthen the restrictions around around deforestation in the Amazon. And he, um, and he, and just, you know, just to be clear, maybe a, a question or two about Bolsonaro is he came into power in January 2019 and his agenda has been to dismantle environmental protection and agencies so that forest destroyers could burn the forest, um, clearing the land like you described earlier. Um, and so his, his rhetoric and his agenda, this agenda and action has like, what, how, how have we sent land speculators, loggers, ag companies emboldened by this? Yeah, I, I think they're super emboldened by, by his, uh, he, he's sort of painting this picture of the Amazon as Brazil's, uh, Brazil's property and resource, um, and that it's actually kind of a patriotic, nationalistic kind of thing for folks in the agribusiness sector, for Brazilians um, to be basically exploiting the Amazon for, for the benefit of Brazil. Um, and so there's definitely, um, he's kind of tapping into a, a racist kind of nationalistic um, history in Brazil. Um, he's very blatantly racist and anti-indigenous. Um, he recently vetoed some legislation that had been drafted to try to protect uh, indigenous peoples um, in the midst of the COVID pandemic. Um, and actually the, the Congress ended up overturning uh, his veto, but, but basically he's kind of combining this kind of old colonialist idea of the Amazon as the property of the colonizers of Brazil, um, mm -hmm. white Brazilians, um, and then uh, kind of using that to embolden the folks that are trying to do this deforestation work. Uh, several environmental activists have been murdered as well, right? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, Brazil is actually one of the most, if not the most dangerous country to be an environmental rights uh, advocate or to be a land defender. Um, and so, yeah, there have been murders of indigenous leaders um, who were confronting illegal loggers on their territory. Um, uh, 
uh, I think his name was Paulo Guajajara, was killed uh, last year. He was a major, he kind of became this symbol um, during the kind of worldwide uproar around the, the fires in the Amazon uh, last year. So there are definitely, um, you know, real indigenous leaders and, and community leaders that are paying the consequences of, of Bolsonaro's change in rhetoric. Yeah. Has he, and how, how if any, if uh, has the Brazilian government taken advantage of the pandemic to get away with deforestation? I've seen a, a number of stories referencing, referencing that. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, one of the, and I can't, I can't kind of speak to a lot of details because I'm not an expert on Brazilian politics, but um, so I just kind of name that uh, at the, from the onset here, but um, yeah, I mean, he's, he's basically said that his hands are tied in terms of fighting these fires, um, that they're not able to provide the kind of resources that are necessary to keep communities safe during the pandemic. Um, and kind of at the same time as they're not uh, fighting these fires, they're not providing healthcare services to uh, indigenous communities. There's this huge, um, you know, loss of life that's happening in indigenous communities in particular in Brazil. Um, he's sort of encouraging, uh, encouraging people to continue deforesting. So I wish I could kind of go into more detail there, but yeah, mm -hmm. there's, um, yeah, definitely like, um, that's something that's happening in tandem. You know, there's, he's also, um, last spring, he appointed somebody who's a well-known, uh, missionary anti-indigenous, uh, um, racist, uh, leader to head kind of the department, um, in the Brazilian government that's in charge of indigenous relations. Um, so it's sort, it's sort of like putting, uh, you know, people at the, the head of the EPA, <laughs> climate deniers at the head of the EPA in the United States, you know, it's that same kind of, um, strategy. Yeah. We sometimes joke that Rand Paul's neighbor is a hero, the one who they got in a fight. The, that story that came out about Bolsonaro and the, his pet Ray, Raya, however you say it, it's that bipod bird that attacked. He has a private zoo in his <laughs> presidential compound and attacked him. I like to think that, that I don't know if I'm pronouncing what the animal's name is. It's a Ray, Raya? I yeah. don't know. Like, it's like an ostrich. Yeah, yeah it's like an emu, but it attacked him. Yeah. So they're very aggressive and it apparently attacked him when he was trying to feed it. So <laughs> it's also a global hero. It's Bolsonaro's Ray. <laughs> A small victory. Small victory. Now, are there? Are you organizing like more kind of direct actions against this? Uh, I mean, you you know, it's a it's a difficult target. Larry Fink is you know, kind of one of the most powerful guys in the world. Right? Whenever I think of BlackRock, I think of that scene in The Godfather where uh, Hyman Roth and Michael are saying, you know, we're bigger than U.S. Steel, and that's that's BlackRock. They're they're bigger than everything, you know. So what? I mean, you know, so it's it's a hard target. Um, what what else are you guys doing to try to? Yeah, so we have, I think I mentioned this earlier, but we're, we're part of a number of, of coalitions. Um, there's the Stop the Money Pipeline Coalition and the BlackRock's Big Problem uh, Campaign. Um, and these are pretty big networks of groups all over the country um, that are organizing. We're, we're actually going to be um, heading into what we're calling September Swarm this month. There's going to be in-person actions all over the country um, on, on BlackRock headquarters. So trying to increase public awareness of this. And, and as I said earlier, 
um, creating that link for folks between Larry Fink and, uh, you know, Brian D's leadership at this company and uh, bad environmental uh, uh, decisions um, as a way of kind of leveraging their potential cabinet positions. So that's, that's one, one thing that folks are organizing are those direct actions. We also have a, a policy team. So we're um, in conversations with folks in Congress um, trying to promote legislation that would put more limitations on the kinds of investments that folks can make. Um, so there's kind of the policy end of things. There's a direct action. Um, there's kind of public education around this, this issue. So we organize a lot of um, kind of finance 101 webinars for people around the country. Um, and uh, there's also kind of tools that, that um, people in the coalition have developed, um, like the, um, maybe you guys are familiar with um, fossil free funds, uh, fossil fuel, uh, yeah, fossil free funds.org. Um, it's basically a, a website that was developed by, I think, as you so, that allows users to go in and check the kind of cleanliness of their own funds. So really trying to, um, you know, alert people of, of uh, to take more responsibility for their own investments um, and make those tools more widely available to people. So I think a lot of our kind of power is in the coalitions that we're building. Um, and then also when we can, uh, obviously things are complicated by the pandemic, um, organizing meetings with, with executive uh, leadership between frontline community leaders, indigenous leaders um, who've been directly affected by um, assets that BlackRock is invested in or assets that JP Morgan Chase is invested in and actually having them meet with leaders. So it's kind of a, a combination of public pressure, um, you know, online rallies, petitions, um, public education, um, policy work, um, and kind of all of these things working together. One last question. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, some of the accompanying work that you did, which was in Columbia, correct? Yeah. With indigenous and campus, you know, camp communities. Yeah. Um, so I was working there as an international human rights accompanier. And basically it's a strategy um, that's been used in conflict areas all over the world where um, outsiders will, um, usually foreigners, um, will come into a, a space where um, human rights activists or environmental activists are being threatened, physically threatened with death threats from a lot of times uh, paramilitary groups, um, from the military itself, um, from a number of different um, threats um, for, for the work that they're doing. So basically it's a strategy where you have a foreigner come in and the idea is that a foreigner is going to be less likely to be targeted. So if you're physically in the same space as an activist, um, their likelihood of being attacked uh, reduces. Is it different than being a human rights observer? Um, Which is a term I've heard. Yeah, it's, it's similar to human rights observing. Um, I think that accompaniment is sort of, um, it's a little bit more active. So you're, you're um, I think with, with observing, you're sort of just like creating kind of a log and then reporting back to others about what you're seeing. Um, there might be limitations of like who you're accompanying or how. Um, <clears throat> it's very, it's very similar. Um, 
basically our work involved um, physically accompanying um, folks in, in areas that had been disputed over between the FARC and the Colombian military. The mm -hmm. FARC is being the oldest uh, left-wing guerrilla group in, in the Western hemisphere. Um, and uh, yeah, you're, you're basically, um, so there's this kind of physical component where you're accompanying people, but then there's also kind of similar to human rights observation, there's uh, an advocacy uh, component of it as well. So meeting with folks in embassies or meeting with, um, you know, other NGOs, um, with the Colombian military, with the Colombian government um, to talk about what you're observing. And it, it was, it's also important to note that it wasn't, um, accompaniers are not the voices of the people that they're accompanying. They're not expressing their desires. They're also not telling um, the folks that they're accompanying what to do um, or what their best strategy uh, for defending themselves should be. It's really just about um, using your own kind of identity as a foreigner to the benefit of uh, whoever wants to use it, however they want to use it. Um, so I think that was something that was really appealing to me in international accompaniment work is that it's a lot of any kind of human rights work um, or international development work of any kind usually has this very kind of colonialist tilt to it where you have like the people from the global north who come down and they fix the problems of the people from the global south. Um, and this was kind of the opposite. It was sort of about being in solidarity with people and kind of uplifting their own, their movements uh, and kind of using your status as a foreigner to call attention to whatever they wanted you to call attention to. So, um, so yeah, as I mentioned, I was working with campesino communities um, in uh, the Northwest of Colombia that were in territory that the, the FARC uh, had recently relinquished to the, to the Colombian government. Um, and then also accompanying, um, you know, indigenous communities, um, other, other communities around the country, um, some of whom were uh, on lands that private companies were trying to take over um, or that had, uh, private companies had already taken over and had completely de destroyed the local environment. So communities were trying to advocate for um, some kind of retribution. Um, so just kind of saw... Um, kind of the on the ground impacts that a lot of like private sector interests have on local communities um, in that right. work. Yeah. You know, it's, we were talking earlier about uh, Brazil being one of the most dangerous places for environmental activists, Brazilian environmental activists and indigenous communities and land defenders. Colombia also ranks at the top of that list as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm wondering like what sort of like what levels of violence did you see or hear about kind of working in that area from whether it's from like right-wing paramilitaries for the government or some of these, some of these companies, which I'm sure were friendly to uh, certain advocates. Yeah. I mean, I, I could talk about that for hours, um, right. but um, yeah, in um, I, I think what became really clear to me in that work was that the, um, so I came into Colombia right the month after the peace accords had been signed between the FARC and the Colombian government. Um, like 20, as, 2015, 2016? Right? 2016, they were signed yeah. in November of 2016. Um, and I got there in January of 2017. Um, and um, 
it it was kind of this time where Colombia really wanted to, the government really wanted to wash its hands and say, look, we figured it out. We're at peace. Everything's great. We can, we can have as much international investment um, as possible now. They really wanted to open themselves up to um, international investment. Um, and so they were relaxing a lot of regulations, um, environmental regulations. They were sort of, um, that it became clear that there were links between the, the military was not protecting, at least the, in the communities that I saw, the military was not protecting the rights of, of the people that lived there. It was really um, protecting the interests of the government to open up a lot of those areas for multinational companies to come in. So, yeah, I mean, and there's, there was also this whole kind of added element of the, the FARC, which had been, really the only authority for, for a lot of people living in that part of the country for the last 50 years. They'd never seen people from the Colombian military or the state or the police. And so suddenly they had, um, you know, the military coming in um, or paramilitary forces coming in and trying to take over um, the, <laughs> I feel like I'm getting ahead of myself, but the, the FARC had done a lot of narco-trafficking work mm -hmm. in some of those areas. And so they left and they created a power vacuum. Um, and uh, suddenly there were a lot of paramilitary groups that were coming in and trying to take over those drug trafficking routes. But mm -hmm. there were also links between paramilitary forces and the actual Colombian military. Um, a lot of folks were seeing, you know, that the military was not going after paramilitary forces. Um, and that's because, uh, at least according to a lot of the communities that I was accompanying, because there was an interest on the part of the military um, to open up those areas for international um, exploitation. Um, so, yeah, in a nutshell, <laughs> um, yeah, the, and the, the kinds of interactions that I had with um, uh, with with paramilitaries was that yeah, we we would come across them. Um, uh, in, in accompanying groups uh, through the jungle um, and ha would have to ask them to leave um, um, territories that we were, um, that, that folks were trying to, to live on peacefully. Um, we were working with a community that refuses to participate in any kind of um, armed struggle. So they wouldn't, they wouldn't um, fight for the FARC. They wouldn't fight for paramilitary groups. They wouldn't engage with the Colombian military. They don't allow armed, uh, arms on their territory. Um, and they don't grow illicit crops. They have a set of guidelines. Um, and so we were accompanying them. Um, and there were a few times where we, we came face to face with paramilitary uh, soldiers and would have to ask them to leave. Um, so, and then there were also times where we could hear um, uh, battles going on between, uh, bombs going off between paramilitary um, and Colombian military, um, which people were very skeptical about whether or not there that was actual combat or if it was kind of being performed um, to appear as though there was um, antagonism between those forces. Awesome. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely a really eye-opening experience um, for me to just kind of see uh, <clears throat> the interest in profit uh, goes right down, right down to the, <laughs> to the little people. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's also important that now you're working in, rainforest environmental advocacy here in the U.S. with that, go ahead, haven't been through that experience. Yeah, I think there's definitely a, a through line there for me. Um, yeah, and it, I also think like 
the that experience was a really unique one and most people you know have never heard of that uh that context or that situation um and so it's it's really um challenging to draw those connections for people between you know a wonky company like blackrock and you know people being displaced from their farm in the middle of the colombian jungle you know or the amazon uh, this is a little off target, but, you know, the other day, interestingly enough, Steve Horn was from Kenosha and you're from Rochester. Could you just like talk a little bit? I mean, does, are you surprised by what's happening in Rochester? What's the kind of general relationship there between the police and, and, the, and the city, you know, uh, administration and, and uh, non-white communities? Yeah, um, it's a good question. I mean, I should I should say like I haven't lived in Rochester for ten years, <laughs> um, but I, I was there recently last last year. I did live there for a little bit, um, but I I can say Rochester is probably one of the most segregated cities, um, you know, in the country. Upstate New York is a particularly racist, segregated um, part of the country, um, and Rochester is absolutely no exception. I I've told friends this before, but I did kind of a community organizing fellowship um, through the University of Rochester uh, several years ago and uh, was working in um, a part of the city um, that has a lot of issues with, with drug trafficking um, and violence. And um, it was just really fascinating to see the relationship between the police um, and, and folks uh, in the community. Um, because the, the kind of the level of like overt racism is it's it's like it, it's kind of unbelievable um there was just to give give some examples um in this particular community there was a, a, you know there were some guys that would sell uh weed on the corner um, or maybe it was, I don't know, some kind of drugs on the corner and the pol the local police would regularly arrest um, black and brown guys that were selling um, on that corner. And the uh, white kids from the suburbs would drive to that corner and pick up their supply for the week. Um, and the Rochester police had developed a policy where they would just scan the license plate number of the car um, and then run it through a database and figure out which address it was associated with. It was always associated with, with some house in the suburbs and they would just send a polite letter to the parents um, of that, uh, of that uh, vehicle, just letting them know, hey, just so you know, your vehicle was spotted in this area of this high uh, drug trafficking rate. So maybe you should talk, if you have any children, you should talk to them about drug trafficking. But the double standard was kind of incredible. And um, another experience I had uh, during that fellowship actually was a police ride along that I did with a, a police officer um, in Rochester. Um, and I remember her saying, uh, explicitly to me that they did racially profile people um, because quote-unquote black people just commit more crimes. So the kind of ignorance and uh, bigotry that runs rampant in the Rochester police force is like no secret. Um, and uh, I think another thing that is probably typical of a lot of police forces around the country is that most of the police officers that work in the Rochester police force don't actually live in Rochester. They live in the suburbs. Um, and a lot of them are uh, really scared white people. Um, so yeah, it's, it was unfortunately not surprising at all to hear that that kind of um, 
violence and bigotry is happening in Rochester. Um, and I think people are totally uh, outraged um, and they should be. And it's really upsetting that, that, the, that the mayor knew about it and didn't do anything about it until she was confronted with public pressure. <laughs> Kenosha, Rochester. We're, uh, pretty soon, we're going to need uh, mediators uh, in uh, in America. You know, <laughs> yeah, accompaniment. Yeah, international accompaniment. Yeah. Yeah, for for, for I don't know US. where we would source them from, but yeah, yeah. Well, I don't. I don't think they. You know, unlike uh, much of the world, I don't think these right wing militias in the U.S. would give a damn. So you know, <laughs> it's uh, true. It's true. And what you're seeing now, and you know, something I've seen a little bit of uh, investigative journalism on when you when you talked about Colombia, I thought of it. Um, you know, it's no, it should be a secret that police are involved in you know all kinds of black market activities, and I think you know that that, that stuff's going on as well too. And I wouldn't be surprised if there's a connection with a lot of these right wing groups uh, as well. You know, I, I've seen reports that you know when COVID hit, the police, you know, there are police who are involved in illegal human trafficking, drug trafficking, things like that. Uh, which probably picked up considerably, you know, so. Um, yeah, absolutely. That's, um, that's not just, you know, unique to the rest of the world. It happens, it happens to here too. So. Yeah, I, th I think that the fact that that's becoming more and more apparent, just, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure you guys have, have spoken about this more on your, on your podcast, but I just feel like we're, we're slipping, um, much more evidently into into fascism um, in the U.S. and like um, it's just becoming all of these these relationships existed before. And I think they're just being made more explicit to people. Yeah, I mean, I study foreign policy and international relations, so the police here just remind me of a paramilitary. You know, extrajudicial extrajudicial killings and this kind of these relationships with these far right extremist groups. You know, uh, kind of extra legal groups. So. Um, I've been thinking about that a lot, you know, especially actually with regard to Colombia and, and Brazil is one of the worst in the world too. And El Salvador and most of Central America in the eighties was like that. So you're seeing that here in American streets now. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty, pretty, pretty grave. So thanks so much for everything. It was, I learned so much, like I said, I don't know as much about this as I wish I did. And I know a lot more now, so I really appreciate it. I, I think we're, we're kind of moving towards the end of our, our, our interview here. You want to tell us uh, where people can plug in uh, if they're interested in doing more on BlackRock or supporting uh, what's going on with the Amazon fires? Yeah, totally. Um, you can check out our Amazon ceasefire campaign at Amazon Watch. We have a lot of different resources there. Um, uh, not just stuff that we're doing, but that a lot of other organizations are doing, sort of using it as like a, a grand central station. Um, for any kind of campaigning or advocacy around uh, deforestation and the fires going on in the Amazon right now. Um, there's also the Black Rocks Big Problem campaign and the Stop the Money Pipeline Coalition that I mentioned. So folks can look into all of those um, and, you know, just Google them. <laughs> and uh, there's a lot of information. Um, one of the things that I mentioned earlier is that our big push on BlackRock right now is for them to adopt a policy on indigenous rights and deforestation. And we've outlined um, with a bunch of other organizations, um, uh, in particular Friends of the Earth, a set of principles that asset managers should be uh, using when developing that kind of a policy. So this isn't just kind of a vague, you know, develop some kind of policy. We've actually been really clear about 
um, what that kind of a policy should entail. And we haven't made it up ourselves. We're just kind of combining a series of different resources that have already been in existence, you know, like the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, um, the ILO, the International Labor Organization's uh, kind of um, uh, outlined several uh, rights of Indigenous folks um, that should be taken into account by uh, any kind of company that's trying to do business on their territories. Um, you know, uh, these are things that should be time bound. They should have really clear um, parameters around them that are measurable. There should be um, external, uh, you know, bodies that are assessing um, whether or not these companies are actually complying. You know, the way that they're affecting water and soil quality should all be looked into. So there's a lot of different components that go into some, something like this and into a policy. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it, you know, I encourage people to look into that. And then the other thing that I think would be good to plug is um, As You Sows. Um, As You Sows is an organization that looks into kind of finance um, and, and um, uh, yeah, financial advocacy work. Um, they do and, a lot of share, they do a lot of shareholder work. Yeah, sorry, shareholder advocacy. Yeah. And they um, they've developed these tools that allow people to check uh, their own investments. So I think that would be really helpful if anybody on this podcast is an investor. You know, you can go and check out exactly what your um, your retirement fund is actually invested in, um, and you can. Uh, choose which funds you think would be useful for you to be investing in and others that are not. Um, because a lot of people have no idea what they're invested in. And they don't know um, that they actually play a role in, in all of this. So. You may get a hit off that our, our chief demographic is men between 45 and 60. So. <laughs> okay. Well, there you go. Yeah. They have but they're, all, they're all leftists. They're all leftists, but I'm sure they have some <laughs> retirement funds or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's been great talking to you. Uh, Pendle Marshall Hallmark from uh, Amazon Watch talking to us about BlackRock and the Amazon fires and and our you know guy we're less happy about Jair Bolsonaro. Um, you've been listening to the Green and Red podcast. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can become a recurring donor at Patreon.com/backslash/GreenRedPodcast. And, or you can make a one-time donation at greenandredpodcast.org. Uh, it's been great talking to you. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me.